0: Hi, this is Dylan Bird, and this is the podcast edition of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly show that puts local issues in a global context, giving insight into our cities, rights, culture, democracy, energy, and the environment. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am till midday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. We're on the final stretch. This Saturday, October 14, Australians go to the polls to vote on whether to change the constitution to enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament. It's been a long journey to get here, characterised by a fractious public debate that's seen racists emboldened. I've personally been amazed at the resilience demonstrated by so many First Nations people who I know and follow in the face of this, and that includes my next guest. Taneen Onus-Williams is a Gunditjmara Bindal Yorta Yorta person, also with ancestral ties to the Myrrh and Irrib Islands in the Torres Strait. Tarnine is a community organiser with Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, a filmmaker and writer, and recently outlined their reasons for voting yes in an article for Crikey. And that was a decision that wasn't arrived at easily. Tarnine, thanks so much for coming on Triple R. It's hugely appreciated.
1: Thank you so much for having me, and um, I'm really excited to have a chat with you this morning.
0: Yeah, likewise. And, I mean, in your article, you touch on the immense toll this referendum process has, has taken on you, and uh, you know, I'm sure you're not alone in that, but I guess it's one thing to endure that privately, but another thing to write an article and, and go public to, to talk about it. Why did you want to lay out your decision to vote yes in Crikey?
1: Well, it's funny, like, Crikey reached out to me in June, and... My, you know, I I think I just kept putting it off, kept putting it off. And it took weeks to get this article out. Like, I, it was a really well-put-out time. And, like, I made sure that I had other black women reading it and giving me feedback. And I did want to write about it because there were so many people that felt conflicted. And I've been working um, on passing the message stick, pro, message research project, All year, like, it was about how did we, you know, make transformative change in this moment. Um, And felt conflicted, (laughs) Um, you know, most of the year. And I heard black followers from around the country feeling the exact same. And so I guess mine was a culmination of hearing from black followers around the country uh, that are politically engaged, that are, you know, our radical activists and... Really, I guess, trying to create a conversation for Mob to say, like, this is not exactly what we wanted, mm. but what can we do in this moment? And also, what can we make of it? And what opportunities can we see? And that's why I guess I've written it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's it's been, you know, a really kind of odd process over the past few months if you know that's one word to describe it I suppose but on the one level it seems like part of the kind of yes campaign's message is to um, you know allay fears in the community that this uh, voice to parliament is going to deliver anything substantial that it's you know it's just an advisory body and all that sort of stuff but then on the other side we want it to do something significant right like those who support first nations justice want this to deliver some kind of transformative Change, so I suppose. Where do you see optimism that that could Mm. happen through the voice to parliament?
1: I think that I think part of me (coughs) that has seen optimism. um, I'll give you an example. Yeah. Um, Last, like yesterday, I had a heap of t-shirts that um, someone from community gave me to hand out to mob, and last yesterday, I spent all day like speaking to people um, about the upcoming kind of referendum and, like, telling people, here you go, like, give these out to you, your family and your friends and, like, people who I usually wouldn't work with or, like, coordinate a rally with or, you know, support people, like, in Black Death and custody stuff. So these are people that aren't out there organising generally. Mm. And I think there is something powerful in bringing people along on a movement that we usually wouldn't see. And there are people, like, in my community that have always, you know, been, like, politically engaged but don't really organise protests and the rallies. Um, and just seeing you know, the amount of black followers getting behind this and also the, the fact that we were talking about the fears of just no and worried about if it is a no, then, like, we're not going to get it for a really long time and just having that validation from Black followers. because if it is a yes, then I think that these these people that we can bring along the way to organise with in the future. And I think that's where I've seen opportunity. But also, just after seeing that even the sixty-seven referendum, it was like so like not great. Like it's about including us in the census, which is absolutely mm. ridiculous. Mm. But after that, we saw that, like, this was not enough. Yeah. And we had the Black Power Movement, we had the Land Rights Movement, all this stuff coming out after that 67 referendum. And I think that's really powerful when we see that, okay, the government's not doing what we want, so we're going to do it ourselves. Yeah. And I think there is something really radical and, uh, like, it's self-determination in that as well when we say this isn't enough and here is, like, the pathway forward.
0: Absolutely. And, I mean, there's history there to draw on as well in terms of, you know, when First Nations communities have have been empowered and been able to take sort of matters into their own... Hands, there have been really significant, you know, positive results that that come out of that. I mean, in your article, you touch on the Aboriginal community-controlled health sector, which um, you know, sort of more than forty years ago was established, and that's delivered huge benefits, and even has served as a model for kind of the way that we do um, health and the like generally. So, I mean, mm-hmm. where do you see out of this process momentum building to empower First Nations communities to? you know, be in charge of their own destiny, I suppose, and and, and not assume on the part of kind of Australians that government is there to kind of solve problems?
1: I think it does... um, I think it is important to, you know, remind people and, like... like, And also, I know our mob. Our mob know that the fight is not over. Our mob know that it is going to be... We're going to continue... And mob um, also know that it's not going to be all that, like, it's not going to be the thing that helps and, like, fixes all these all these things. But I think mob seed is a pathway forward. And I think... And, yeah, like, I just feel that, like, white Australia needs to resist the, the slumber and the complacency that comes after this, because mm. people think, oh, you know... I voted yes. Like, I've done my part for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people around the country. But we need to resist that, urgent, like that urge to do that. We need to continue to support our campaigns. We need to keep to shop in the streets. We need to continue to donate money to support our campaigns and all these sorts of things that people usually, you know, would do, particularly in, in Victoria and, you know, the East Coast. But um, there is, like this way of taking control because it means that black followers and all black organisations will have, you know, a body to speak to about policies that matter and affect their
0: communities. Yeah. Speaking with Tanine Ernest-Williams, is a Gunijmira Bindul Yorta Yorta person and traces ancestry to the Torres Strait and the Murr and Arab Islands, also a community organiser for worries of the Aboriginal resistance and speaking kind of off the back of an article that, uh, that Tanine published in Crikey over the past... Week and you draw some parallels in your piece with the marriage equality plebiscite and highlight mm. how there are some similarities there, but some important differences as well. To what extent can we look to that, and what can we learn from that? I suppose in relation to the current process we're going through with the voice to parliament referendum.
1: The things that we can draw from that is that it was about marriage equality; it wasn't about anything else. Like it was about you know same sex couples being able to get married. One of the things that, that were really, like, I'm sorry, my cat's running around right now. That's okay, I um, can relate to that. <laughs> the one thing that I did find and I did have this aha moment recently was the fact that, you know, Victoria Bend is like banned Conversion Therapy, like in Victoria, you know, in workplaces we, we see gender-neutral bathrooms. My partner was able to... Get their names, and their gender marker changed recently because of uh, since the marriage equality plebiscite, and people you know voted in astounding standing yes. Mm. So that meant that governments around the country, in the states, were able to make progressive policies that affected lives of everyday uh, LGBT people, and I think there's something in that when the government sees that. Oh wow, this there's support for this community, then we can take action and make progressive policies because we have a mandate that supports us and that is the Australian vote. And I think that's where that the power from the plebiscite come in. like was it the plebiscite destructive? was it harmful? Yes, but it also um, meant that these sorts of you know things that affect trans people's lives every day, were also uh, implemented because of the government mandate, um, because of the mandate from the public, Australian public. So I think that's where we can draw that from. I think that's where we can share those similarities because I do like to think about the government having ADHD and they need the pressure to do something. Mm. And if we do vote yes in the upcoming referendum, then... We know that policies, like you know, transformative and progressive policies, will follow after that. And I think in this moment, where we have treaty processes around the country, uh, we need to make sure that we do have a mandate for for those treaty processes around the country, for them to to be carried out to, to get to a treaty negotiation, but also that. We have the support um, of the federal government as well for all of those treaty processes um, in, this, in each state. So I think that is something that will like be really important to get that yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the the reporting, and this is to be expected. It's you know, reflects the nature of journalism. Really, has has focused on the polling, um, and I think you know, there's new polling out pretty much every day on this. And some of the commentary seems to suggest that this is almost a fait accompli. But I really resist that because the vast majority of people still have a decision to make and and will vote on um, Saturday, October the 14th. I mean, what message do you have for people, I suppose those not just who haven't made up their mind, but... In, in terms of having those really necessary conversations with people in their lives to encourage, I mean, you know, in, in your case, you're advocating for a yes vote, but also to bring that broader momentum for change and support First Nations justice initiatives beyond just the referendum this Saturday?
1: I would say that it's so important to support First Nations people in this country right now in the face of the racism and the white supremacy that we're facing and a way that you can combat the racism that Aboriginal people are facing around the country is to write yes in that ballot paper and send a message to, you know, the racists and the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis to say, no, we are standing with First Nations people because this vote isn't about, like, what the body will look like. And what, who's going to be in there? It's about how this country feels about First Nations people. And that is um, what people need to think about when they wake, want to wake up on 8, October 15th. It's like, what country do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a country that cares about First Nations people or not?
0: Yeah, and that's got to be really important sentiment, regardless of what happens on Saturday as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, It's been so great to have you on Triple R, Taneen. I hugely appreciate you giving us your time. Um, All the best for this week and and for Saturday as well, and I hope to chat again in the future. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Absolute pleasure. You too, and and best of luck with your cat. (laughs) R. The people of West Papua have long suffered at the hands of the Indonesian government and military, which has violently suppressed independent struggles. It's been historically quite... Difficult to get news and information out of the region, but new reports paint a devastating picture of the current situation over there with the murder and torture of civilians, including children. And all this at a time when Australia is strengthening its defence ties with Indonesia, which raises questions about whether more could be done at the diplomatic level to address this humanitarian crisis. Mani Cordell is Major Projects Editor at Guardian Australia. She's recently published an in-depth story on the situation over there and joins me now on the line. Marnie, thanks so much for coming on Triple R. Welcome.
2: Hi Dylan, how are you going?
0: Yeah, well thanks. I think it makes sense to begin this conversation where you begin your story. Tell us about the 17-year-old Whitey Unu and what happened to him.
2: Yeah, so we told a story about um, a group of young men and teenage boys who were detained, violently detained by the Indonesian military in West Papua. This is in the Highlands area, so it's a really remote area. Area in the middle of West Papua, and um, you know journalists aren't allowed into West Papua. Full stop. But this area in particular is very hard to sort of get any information from. Um, these boys were detained in April and taken to a military headquarters. Um, and according to the advocates ad- activists we spoke to, they were they were tortured, burnt, um, burnt beyond recognition. Uh, and one of them, Witi Unu, a 17-year-old, died at the hands of the military.
0: Yeah, it's it's a really tragic story and it makes for really hard reading but you know really important reading nonetheless. And so what were these young men boys accused of?
2: They were accused of being part of the West Papua Liberation Army which is you know that they're sort of they're uh, they're fighting for independence they are- they're a violent and armed group, um, but there are a whole lot of civilians in West Papua as well who are caught up in this violence, and um, they were accused of being part of that. Uh, the activists we spoke to were adamant that they were not part of the rebel army and that they were just ordinary high school kids.
0: Yeah, and do you have a sense of how widespread these kinds of practices are currently, like the, the, the murder and really severe, horrific torture of civilians?
2: Yeah, I mean, I – so I've covered West Papua just going back a little bit for, you know, sort of verging on 20 years Mm. on and off, um, and I – most of my reporting has been and most of my conversations have been with people in the sort of the outer city areas so the you know the people who live on the coast and live in in the major cities there those people are much easier to get in contact with um and I haven't done a lot of reporting on the highlands area so when you speak to people in the city they talk about being interrogated they talk about being followed by the police and military they talk about um You know, being arrested for raising the banned West Papuan flag, things like that. But I hadn't really been aware that there is actually a much more dangerous and deadly situation in the highlands, in the interior, where people are being gunned down, people are being tortured, um, and houses are being burnt, churches are being burnt down. And it just seems to be indiscriminate. That there seems to be no, you know, it is it is a hot spot of the conflict. There is an armed an armed, fort, an armed, you know, rebel army there, but all of the civilians who live there are also being targeted and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really horrific. So these kinds of stories are, are actually very common.
0: Yeah. And we hear, you know, from Australia, as, as you suggest, reporting from the, the current situation in West Papua can be hard to come by because journalists aren't really allowed in there, but we hear about flare-ups from time to time. In your reporting, you write that the conflict, as it currently stands, escalates following the capture of Philip Merton, the New Zealand pilot, earlier this year. So how has that sort of played in to this escalation in, in conflict and human rights abuses?
2: Yeah, so in this Highlands area where the Rebel Army is based, um, that's where they're holding the New Zealand pilot. And when he was captured in February, the the military sent in a whole lot of special forces. So there's military there all the time. There are military stationed in these areas constantly. But on top of that ordinary military presence, a bunch of special forces, uh, soldiers and forces were, were brought in to try and free him and try and Get him, and um, those operations failed. He's still there, being held by them. Um, But it has made it much more dangerous for civilians uh, because they're they're just um, you know, Kapasus, which is the Indonesian special forces, are as one of our sources said, shoot to kill. Like they are, they really do just go around shooting people, Mm. um, and they don't ask questions. And that's what's been going on.
0: And I mean, you know, I imagine as a journalist, you've put these questions to, to people in the in, Indonesian government and, and military as well. Have you had sort of any response, sort of their side of the story about these kinds of practices and, and the, the torturing killings that are happening?
2: Yeah, we tried really hard to get a response from them. Um, we sent. So I worked on this story, I should have said at the start, with a, a translator by the name of Zelda Grimshaw. Mm. Um, we worked on it closely together. I couldn't have done it without her. She's... Um, you know, a fluent Indonesian language speaker, we put really extensive questions to the military and to the Defence Minister as well and didn't receive any response after multiple follow-ups.
0: How do you actually go about doing this reporting?
2: It is difficult. So, you know, and that's kind of by design. Indonesia doesn't want a spotlight on West Papua. They make it very, very difficult for any journalist to operate there, even local journalists, Um, and they make it difficult for foreign journalists to visit. So um, it relies on sort of making contacts from afar and just sort of – you once you know a few people you can you ask them do you know anyone in this area and you and then you ask that person who else should we speak to and it's just this process of trying to get a circle of contacts around whatever you're trying to report on um but it's difficult and i do you know on one hand i am i'm disappointed that the australian media doesn't pick this up as an issue because it's so close to australia mm. and it's it involves australia so heavily but on the other hand i do understand that It's really difficult and you need sort of specialist knowledge to be able to do it, so you know, I do wish more people would try to develop that knowledge though.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're really grateful for all the work you do. I mean, as part of the reporting, there's another person's story that you highlight, a young woman called Perina, and and her kind of situation is really, you know, it makes it again, really difficult reading. This came out of uh, reports of soldiers firing on women and children. And and this young woman, I believe, was was shot and then um, seemed to escape with a bullet in her abdomen. But, you know, as you highlight. It's likely shouldn't have any access to healthcare and the like. How did you go trying to track her down and, and checking in? I suppose on how she's going.
2: Yeah, so she was. We were told she was returning from shopping in um, a nearby village. Um, her and a group of other people, including women and children, mostly were carrying string bags full of food. Um, you know, we were told they were very obviously not combatants, not guerrillas, not part of the rebel army. They were kids and they were holding shopping, and the military opened fire on them. Um, she was shot in the lower back. We've seen photos of her lying um, down with a sort of gaping wound wound in her lower back. Uh, but she fled to a remote refugee camp soon after that happened, and we tried really hard to get information. We asked various people, you know, do you have you heard anything about her Are you able, is anyone able to get to her? And we were told that she's in such a remote area, such a military controlled area that, um, you know, one activist told us that he can't get through there because of snipers, that there's military checkpoints everywhere and people standing up in the mountains and, you know, ready to shoot at you if you try to get through. So we weren't able to get information about her, but um, they understand that the bullet is still lodged inside her and she's in an area that's extremely remote where where serious disease is, you know, kind of rife and no medicine, no doctors. So, I, you know, I, I really feel quite devastated when I think about what might have happened to her.
0: Yeah. Speaking with Marnie Cordell, Major Projects Project Editor at Guardian Australia, speaking about an in-depth report money's published into the current sort of violence, human rights abuses in West Papua. And, I mean, as you note, West Papua is very close to Australia. Australia is also, to some extent, implicated in this through our diplomatic ties with Indonesia. There's been a strengthening of defence ties in particular recently through the Defence Cooperation Agreement. You've spoken to people as part of your reporting, including Andreas Hasono from Human Rights Watch in Indonesia, who's, you know, spent a long time highlighting um, human rights issues in that particular country. what What is or, or could Australia's role be and, and how should we think about our relationship with Indonesia in light of this long-running issue with West Papua?
2: Look, it is difficult and I do understand that the Australian government has a particular view on Indonesia and its importance to our geopolitical security. Like, it, I, I can see that that is where the government is coming from, especially as sort of China makes moves in the region, um, aggressive moves in the region. The Australian government sees Indonesia as a very, very important ally in that geopolitical battle, I guess. Um, Different from that, though, is what Australian citizens and journalists should be doing. And I think the problem that I see on this issue is that we're on the same page at the moment. The government says, oh, there's nothing to... The Australian government and the Indonesian government tend to say there's nothing to see here, or they won't comment on this issue. And... Unfortunately, journalists and, and Australians are going along with that and sort of believing that line when, in fact, once you dig, you know, very close to the surface, you realise that it's it's not the case and that they have particular reasons and motives for saying that. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think two things that we were told advocates really want is for Australians to push for access to foreign, for foreign journalists to West Papua and for access to human rights monitors to West Papua. Those are two sort of simple things that um, Australians can call for and put pressure on.
0: And the Australian government has been photographed with Indonesian Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto, who's one of the prime candidates to take over from Joko Widodo as President of Indonesia next year. Uh, He's someone who has, you know, a very patchy, to put it lightly, human rights record, been accused of some really heinous, violent crimes throughout Indonesia's history. I mean, does the prospect of, of him having a more prominent role in the Indonesian government put more emphasis, I suppose, on the need for Australia to to highlight these issues in West Papua and push for, uh, you know, at least more access for journalists and human rights monitors and the like?
2: Yeah, I mean, Prabowo is a very problematic character and I think Australia, the Australian government would have been, you know, put in a very difficult position when he was elevated to Defence Minister. Um, he has a... a devastating track record. He was allegedly involved in, in, in massacres in East Timor, uh, in the disappearance of activists in Jakarta. And when he was elevated to Defence Minister, the Australian government obviously was put in a position of having to treat him as a, you know, a democratically elected leader that they had to engage with. I do think, though, and as Andreas pointed out to me in the article, that they could be doing more in terms of, you know, they don't... There are things that they could be doing Um, to show that they don't approve of his track record at the same time as engaging with him um, as as a a democratically elected regional leader.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and I mean, this might be going slightly outside your brief, but I mean, Australia has had a rocky relationship with Indonesia in the past over, you know, East Timorese independence, for example, and the execution of members of the Bali Nine as well. Nonetheless, we have managed to maintain, you know, diplomatic ties and there is this strengthening for the relationship to the Defence Cooperation Agreement. Does that history at all kind of make it make it easier or more difficult to call out some of these acts and, and push for the Indonesian government to, you know, be more transparent?
2: Yeah, I mean the Indonesian government has been extremely sensitive about Australia doing that in the past. Um and it has led to you know it has led to issues in the relationship in the past, but at the moment what we're doing is trying to forge an even closer relationship than what we already have with the Indonesian military. So this new defense cooperation agreement is about bringing an Indonesian troops into Australia to train here for example. Um and really there is no transparency about about whether those same people then go off and and work in West Papua. So there's – what we could be doing is calling for more transparency about that. We could be making – I mean, yes, it is beyond my brief to sort of advise yeah. the government <laughs> on this, but there is – you know, there are things that could be done that are not being done to, um, to make clear that we don't approve of that. that human rights record there
0: yeah and with the the relationship you have with your sources and and contacts over in in West Papua, I mean how did they respond and and feel about their story being told and and I suppose you know Australians or or people from all parts of the world being more aware of their plight
2: they are Always, always incredibly brave in talking out about this stuff. Like every West one I've ever spoke to, spoken to says, "Yes, please use my name. Yes, you can. You know, you can quote me." It's very dangerous for them to be speaking mm. to foreign journalists, but they're always so brave about it because they are so committed to their story being told, and they want the world to know. And whenever I've published on this, I've always had, you know, a lot of people saying, "Thank you, thank you. Please, I, we just want more. We just want the world to know what's what's happening here."
0: Hugely grateful for you filling us in on this story, Marnie. It's super important reporting. There should be much more of it, despite the difficulties. And um, yeah, congratulations on it and, and, you know, look forward to, to reading more, uh, as heavy and, and, you know, horrific as that reading often is. Thanks so much for, for coming on Triple R. Thanks, Dylan. Triple R. The issue of judicial independence is one that tends to be most commonly associated with the United States, where highly partisan appointments to the Supreme Court have had far-reaching consequences on issues like abortion. While the situation is very different in Australia, we have over recent decades seen a willingness for politicians and commentators to criticise high-profile judgments. Often these get weaponised as part of broader culture wars on issues like refugees and Indigenous land rights. My next guest argues that such a tax set a dangerous precedent that threatens a separation of powers and potentially impinges on the ability for our courts to deliver justice. Isabel Reinecki is a lawyer and founder of Grata Fund, an organisation that provides campaigning and legal support for people and communities seeking justice across a range of different areas. Isabel has got a new book out through Monash University's In the National, Public, In the National Interest Series, I should say. It's called Courting Power, Law, Democracy and the Public Interest. Isabel, welcome to Triple R.
3: Thank you so much for having me. That was a great summary. <laughs>
0: well, so there's a lot <laughs> in this book. I mean, when do we start to see the independence of Australia's courts come under challenge?
3: It's interesting and probably unsurprising to many of your audience that the, the point at which the courts become most viciously targeted is when First Nations people's rights are at stake. So really what we saw was the first wave of those sort of attacks against the judiciary in the post-Mabo era, so people who were really frustrated with the outcome of the Mabo decision, so particularly agriculturalists, pastoralists, mining interests, um, and the Howard, uh, what what was to become the Howard government as well, um, really became kind of incensed and enraged by that decision. Um, and that then followed through and has taken various permeations right up till you know, the, the current no debate in the referendum and voice campaign, which has really seen, you know, weaponising high court, potential high court decision making as a reason to, to not vote for for the voice. Um, so you'll see, you know, in the AEC pamphlet that has been sent to every household in the country, the no campaign quite prominently presents, you know, the argument that, well, you know, this what if it leads to high court litigation as if that's some sort of terrible thing, whereas actually, you know, leading to high court litigation... Generally, it's quite a good thing because it's, you know, one of the last remaining places in our democracy that has the ability to kind of call out and, and um, check the power of governments um, and is really interested in facts rather than spin and PR and mis- and disinformation.
0: Yeah, and so there is this line we can trace from Mabo right up to, you know, literally the present day with what's happening with the, the voice referendum campaign. Of course, we're all going to um, the voting booths this Saturday. I mean, in the wake of Mabo... This, an organisation called the Samuel Griffith Society was established. Can you just sort of tell us about that grouping and, and how significant it was in playing into this willingness, I suppose, to criticise or, or call out some judgments in the courts?
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. And it's, you know, not a well-known organisation outside of its own network of influence, although that network of influence is very significant, Um, They host annual conferences or sometimes a little bit more often than that, but they host annual conferences where they really platform, um, for the most part, quite, um, you know, capital C conservative approaches to issues in the world um, and those scholars that are associated with, with those preferences, I guess, in the world. Um, but although they also promote, you know, and have you know, every eminent member of, of the legal profession who's working at a scholarly sort of level invited, um, you know, you, you see chief justices when they're currently acting are invited to speak. You see prime ministers uh, are invited to speak and then do speak. Um, but you know there is a very strong tilt to the to the views of, of the members, and really when it was established, really in the kind of shadows of the Marbo decision, it was sort of seen as a rejection of the court's approach in Marbo, which they decided was just completely contrary to you know the proper way of doing what they think is the, the work of the courts. But there wasn't a really significantly well thought through uh, theoretical or uh, approach to judicial decision making that, that was the issue, um, although they were sort of under, under the guises of a critique of judicial decision making and approaches of making judgments. Really what it's about is criticising approaches of the law that result in decisions that Aren't in the interests or in the belief or ideological system of of the members of that society, and you know they they go on to have significant influence. They've got senior members of that organisation who are you know very seriously uh, powerful. Coalition party donors, who have the ear of you know of governments when they're in power, um, of coalition governments when they're in power, um, and have a real perspective on how courts should be operating in this country, and that's not a, not a mode that is necessarily the the best mode for, for um, providing justice to the whole country.
0: Yeah, the term activism has used, been used to denigrate particular judgments that you know maybe don't align with a certain worldview for those judges you know, as far as you're you're aware, who have been caught up in this and and accused of of making judgments, you know, based on a more kind of ideological leaning. I mean, how do they respond to that? Because in my experience, judges tend to very much not see themselves as activists.
3: That's completely right. And I think, you know, there's a a deep rejection of that label. I mean, you know, at a a literal level, the label is sort of meaningless because it suggests that there's some sort of approach of the judge that is sort of activist, and when that's just not borne out in how the judges make making decisions. If anything, judges in Australia tend to make extraordinarily small, fee, conservative, um, modest judgments, often on quite technical reasoning. That is actually seen as kind of, with some humour, from judges around the world, as you know, we've, we've just developed an extremely technical kind of approach to, to the law. Um, yeah, I think I think that's sort of part of my answer. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, listeners would be familiar, I'm sure, with Marbo and obviously with the upcoming voice referendum. There's another issue, though, that implicates First Nations people which happened in 2020. It was a, a case involving people called Love and Toms and this again sort of ignited this negative response about the way that judges were, were kind of coming to certain decisions. Can you just fill us in on that case and, and how it led to a revival of some of those sentiments that came following Mabo?
3: Yes, absolutely. So, Love and Toms was sort of, you know, in some ways the, um, the the consequence years and years later of the Mabo decision, which really said, you know, there is something special between the relationship of First Nations people in this country that no government can really undo. Um, and in that decision, the court found that you could not remove the citizenship of an Aboriginal person, which is what um, the the Home Affairs Office was trying to do, was trying to deport some Aboriginal people. Um, and remove their citizenship and the court said you can't do that Um, and the response was really ferocious and really targeted on judges as saying that you know they've gone too far they're activists but actually in their decision making if anything it's you know some of the most small c conservative judge making you could possibly have Um, and just in answer to your previous question a a little more um you know judges don't don't acknowledge and don't, I think, for the most part, believe that they are impacted by those sorts of criticisms. Mm. Um, They stay out of the fray of those discussions quite rightly for the most part. Um, It's sort of seen as further denigrating the court by kind of getting involved in those sort of public stouches. Um, But the the response to Love and Tom's was so ferocious that the the Judicial Association actually did make a public statement and wrote a public um, column in The Australian, really criticising the extent um, of the um, attacks on the court as being completely inappropriate. Um, and I think, you know, a, a secondary point to that is while judges themselves are not necessarily feeling that they are impacted by those sorts of direct attacks, um, and quite rightly, what it does do is it sets a culture, um, and this is a long-term, you know, multi-decade culture really since Marbo, that says courts are being watched really closely by, you know, really the the kind of right of the conservative movement in Mm -hmm. Australia and will be called out very vitriolically if they step out of bounds although it's not just the judges who are called out, it's the entire ecosystem that lives around the judges that brings these sorts of cases. So it might be lawyers who are representing refugees being called un-Australian by Peter Dutton. It might be environmental lawyers at the Environmental Defender's Office being accused of bringing environmental lawfare when they try and hold Adani and the government accountable to environmental regulation, Um, or having their funding cut, which is exactly what happened to the EDO after the Adani series of litigation.
0: Speaking with Isabel Necki, Executive Director and Founder of Garata Fund, all about a new book she's published as part of Monash University's In the National Interest series. It's called Courting Power, Law, Democracy and the Public Interest. And, I mean, you've just touched on how it tends to be the, the conservative side of, of kind of politics and the commentariat who really double down on this criticism of the courts. But you do highlight an instance where the, the Gillard government also kind of dabbled in this following a ruling that scuttled its attempt to detain asylum. Seekers. Can you just sort kind of explain that and, and I suppose contextualise it within this broader concern you have about the independence of the judiciary being brought into question?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's definitely not something that is only the preserve of the right of politics, although it's definitely more dominant on that side. Um, the Gillard government, or in particular the prime, former Prime Minister, was very critical of the court after it made a decision that found that. Um, the, that the government wasn't be able, able to proceed with what was called the Malaysia solution, so essentially sending um, people seeking asylum to Malaysia. The court decided that actually wasn't going to be lawful. Um, and, you know, she responded um, with some direct criticisms of the court. I guess the difference of, of what happened there, though, is that um, the Attorney-General and the kind of surrounding mechanisms of government kind of quickly kind of moved to smooth over that um, that statement. But it does show, you know, if the path is set on one side of politics to criticise judges and the judiciary when they make decisions that they don't like... Um, the, the, the ground is laid for the other side of politics to do the same. And, you know, while I seek to kind of sound a bit of an alarm and raise some awareness of what's happening uh, in terms of the judicial system in Australia, particularly from the right, wh- what I'm not seeking to do is, you know, raise some sort of counter-campaign yeah. because what we don't want to have in Australia is what we've got in America, which is this very much left versus right political um, uh, court system which is leading to some really terrible uh, both long-term strategies and, and terrible results. Um, you know that obviously um, due abortion rights uh, issue has been you know one of the most high profile but, but there are a range of other issues that are taking place in America as well and it's hard to see a way out of that problem once the kind of once the cat's out of the bag how you actually can pull it back. So I think it's really important at this point in time that we really hold on to the centre of what the court should be and, and its role in the country is.
0: That's a really important sentiment, I I think, because you highlight that in the book, where on the one hand, you know, if judges get involved in these kind of debates and stouches, then that, that adds fuel to the fire. It kind of spurs them on and can play into these broader culture wars. But also in ignoring it, we're not ensuring that we have that integrity and independence of the court system upheld as well. I mean, how robust is Australia's democracy, do you think, for withstanding the kind of partisan use or or partisan commentary surrounding the courts, given that it has, you know, led to some pretty high profile criticisms of like the Love and Tom's case. Um, and, and is also very much prominent in the debate over the indigenous voice to Parliament?
3: Look, I think it is very strong and I think we're we're very lucky for for where it's at. Um, there are things there are signs that, that it might be starting to unravel though. So for example the AAT becoming so deeply politicized mm. that if you're a person seeking asylum, having a, re- a, re- a visa re- review decision, you've got a completely un- a completely different chance of getting your visa refusal, refusal overturned. If you've got a, um, an administrative tribunal member um, reviewing your decision who was a coalition appointment versus a Labour appointment, which is a real problem. We do, though, have a head start against the US in you know not falling down that rabbit hole. Uh, a couple of things, for example. Um, I had an a, a, um, appointment process to the high court and to the federal court, for that matter, that is not mired in political controversy, that is not, you know, a, really a spectator sport as, as it's become in the U.S., that helps. We've also got pretty strong cultural feel within the legal system and within the kind of profession, which is that the American system is distasteful and, and damaging. Although I have to say, I was surprised by the success of organisations like the Institute for Public Affairs, who really campaigned for capital C political conservative appointments to the High Court who, um, you know, often claim success when judges are appointed. They like to say, oh, well, that person's conservative, and the judges really don't like that very much Mm. for valid reasons. You know, you don't get to that point of your legal career just to be claimed by kind of one side of politics. However, there was one appointment in 2020 that the IPA is probably quite right to claim as a political conservative, especially based on some of his decisions subsequently. Um, And I think that that's something that we need to be aware of because I would have thought within the, you know, you know, relatively modest legal community in Australia that you wouldn't win a campaign that's seeking an appointment for a capital C political conservative on the bench, but they did win. And I think that that's a cause um, for people to pause and really take stock of you know what the risk is and, and how quickly things could unravel if, if we let them.
0: Yeah, I mean, just very briefly, I want to talk about Grata Fund, because this is an organisation you established uh, partly out, out of an awareness that the, the cost system in Australia, so where a litigant needs to pay for an opponent's legal fees in the event they lose, um, you know, it makes people potentially uh, not inclined to pursue legal action because they could suffer quite considerably um, as a result of that. So Gratifon was established partly to deliver broader justice and support people in communities engaged in, in issues that have a kind of broader overriding public interest. Can you just kind of tell us a little bit about how that actually works and where you've seen that deliver some positive change?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Justice Connect has estimated that nine in ten good cases that have merit and, you know, could validly go on to court aren't getting to court because of that cost risk. And that's a big problem, really, in my view, for democracy. Because if you've got a whole bunch of people who are trying to bring cases that could hold governments accountable to the law in the same way that anyone walking down the street is accountable to the law, if you've got cases like that not getting to court in that volume, you're actually essentially not accessing this whole section of our democracy, which is the court system, which is designed to check other parts of the of the system. And I think that that's something that's pretty alarming. And and so that's why Grata Fund does what it does. And one of the things that it does is provide protection so that people can bring cases of kind of systemic impact and of national interest to the courts and have them heard without that risk that their entire financial futures will be bankrupt by the, the potential loss. And we've seen some really amazing impacts of enabling cases to happen in that way. Most recently in Luramba, um, a community represented by some incredible lawyers, including a Victorian barrister, Matt Albert, and the Australian Lawyers for Remote Aboriginal Rights, who have brought, with Luramba, a case and a series of cases to hold the, the Northern Territory government accountable for pumping toxic water into homes. So the community in Laramba has been has been forced to drink or has been forced to have taps that that are filled with water that's filled with uranium um and obviously drinking uranium isn't very good for anybody's yeah. health um, and, and the government, you know, denied that it had any responsibility for that. And that community couldn't have taken that risk of bringing that case if it would have had to pay the government's legal bills. Just lost. And it lost twice. And then it finally is just won in the, in the Northern Territory Supreme Court and established a precedent now for the entire of the territory and potentially 250,000 Aboriginal uh, people living in remote communities across the country. <laughs>
0: What's well, super important work you're doing and a, and a super fascinating read that you've produced as part of Monash University's In the National Interest Series as well. Thanks so much for joining us today on Triple R.
3: Thanks for having me. Triple R on
2: FM, digital, online and via the app.
0: Gary Star Grease Lightning, is a delightfully bonkers show playing as part of Melbourne Fringe as Gary, a self-described overzealous idiot, attempts to perform all of Greek mythology in order to save his Hellenic homeland from economic ruin. It features all the stuff that makes Fringe fringe, including crowd participation, puns, music and G-strings. And to give us a sneak peek, Gary Starr's creator, the multi-award wedding performer, Damien Warren-Smith, joins me on the line. Hello, Damien. How are you going? Oh, I'm very well, Dylan. How are you? Yeah, going very well. And, I mean, we're about a, a week into Melbourne Fringe. How's it going for you so far?
4: Yeah, I can't complain so far. The audiences have been great and they're growing. Um, obviously, the weather is very dependent because we're in an outdoor, like we're in a tent essentially down in Queen Vic market. So mm. beginning of the week was a bit wet and windy. And then the weather got nice and it does make a huge difference too, at least my enjoyment backstage, not having to run around bare feet in the wet.
0: Totally. Well, yeah, I mean, you're barely clothed through a lot of this, so I imagine if the weather's (laughs) warm, that makes it a bit easier.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I definitely notice it, definitely notice it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, And, I mean, this show includes a lot of crowd interaction. How much does that change from night to night?
4: I think the longer I do it, the less it changes. Like, when I first started doing it, um, because I don't give a lot of – direction I sort of you know as you as you know I sort of hand yeah. out a prop or I make a suggestion and then someone gets up and and I don't know what they're gonna do and then the, the more you play the show you begin to learn the parameters within which people are likely to play and then rather than me trying to get to learn what they do to make it work and so there's just like an infinite number of versions of the show based on whether or not people do, you know, they bring a lot or they bring not much at all. But I love that. I love that danger of um, from night to night not knowing really what, what's going to happen, you know, and there are some versions in my mind where I think of them as a success. I think, oh, if they do this, it'll be great. Mm. But then they do the opposite and it <laughs> blows everyone out of the water. They're like, oh, wow, okay.
0: <laughs> it's a, I mean, I saw this over the weekend on Saturday night and the crowd members who got involved were incredible. Like, they really embraced it and really added to the show. I mean, does that surprise you? at all at how well people play these roles.
4: Well, this, uh, this is the biggest compliment I get, and, and people constantly, I wouldn't say accuse me, but they say, oh, so you've definitely got audience plants. I'm like, no, I don't. I, I don't. had that
0: question, I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> well, to begin with,
4: it's, it would be a logistical nightmare like, to explore all <laughs> over the world, and I, and I just can't afford to pay people to do yeah. that. And, um, but even, even people who I know really well, people, you know, fellow artists who know that I don't use audience plants, they came and, you know, come to the show, and one of my friends just the other day said to me, he's like, yeah, I know you don't use audience plants, Oh, but that guy was definitely a part, wasn't he? I'm like, no, he wasn't. <laughs> but it's, it, people just love to play, and I think the character Gary is, you know, people realise very early on that Gary is the part of the joke, no matter what. Um, people feel safe to get up and, uh, and just be
0: free. Absolutely. Well, can you talk to us about this character Gary? Because this isn't the first time we've seen him. You sort of invented him for a show called Gary Star Performs Everything. Who is he, and, and what's his genesis?
4: So I I always say Gary is kind of, uh, he's me, but slightly higher status and lower intelligence. (laughs) Um, And I say that in the sense that, you know, I think he is kind of just me. He's like me as a kid. And, in fact, when my mum, you know, came and saw the show, the the first one for the first time, she said um, there was sort of mannerism stuff that she'd seen me do as a kid, which she'd never, she hadn't seen since. And I didn't, that wasn't a conscious thing. So I think I've tapped into... Just this really um, this childlike version of myself who just loves to get up and play, and I think the shows feel like, and I want them to feel like, the kind of show you might have put on for your parents in the living room for, for their friends, you know, um, but but I'm doing it on a scale, you know, on a on a festival stage, so that's why I think people feel so familiar and so close to Gary, um, but yeah, he, I mean, he's my clown really. He's mm. he's me. He's me, but but uh, but an idiot.
0: Yeah, and. I mean, that sounds like something that must be a whole lot of fun to be able to, you know, act like a kid as an adult because you've, you know, done serious acting in the past as well. You've appeared on Law & Order UK, The Persuasionists, Love My Way. You've also found yourself in in Clown School and now you do these kind of, you know, physical comedy type shows as well. How does that kind of sit with you as a performer and, and the enjoyment that you get out of it?
4: Yeah, I think one of the reasons I, I drifted into clown was so I didn't realize that, um, that like clown as a, as a, as a, as a theatre style was a thing. Growing up, particularly in Australia, we don't really think of clowns as anything but, you know, the, the red nose and the, the big shoes and stuff. Um, and then it was when I was in the UK that I discovered these, these theatre companies performing what I just considered to be incredibly playful and enjoyable work. And so, I sort of delved into that world and then went went off to France and trained with this uh, this guy called Philippe Goliath, who's like a clown guru. Um, and I think the reason I was drawn to it was because I was getting a little bit bored with acting. I'd been doing a lot of, you know, I'd done Shakespeare and um, a lot of new writing plays in London around the UK. And, uh, and then I, I discovered this thing which was really enjoyable but also quite terrifying. Yeah. And I thought, oh, let's try that. And I've always been a bit like that and so and then once you've once you've experienced that what it's like to really feel free and to be in you know like I I'm just, I feel like I'm in my flow state pretty much every time I perform this show like I come off and I'm like well, don't really know what happened there but I had a great time <laughs> 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 is it and so
0: it... Yeah. yeah, I'm just wondering, like, I mean, it strikes me as a show in particular that takes a lot of energy. You're performing basically, I think, almost every day of Melbourne Fringe. Do you sort of need to really consciously get yourself in the right frame of mind or, or are you just sort of ready to go as soon as you step onto stage?
4: I used to think that there was like a right frame of mind, and particularly when I was an actor, I think I was very precious about, you know, making sure I'd warmed up for the right amount of time and do all these kind of things, doing my voice formal. And then, out of necessity, when you're touring the fringe circuit, sometimes you just don't have that that luxury because you're you're changing over the set or the show before you runs over, and there's only a 15 minute change, and you've got it, and the props are missing, and someone steals a prop, and, and and I've discovered that you can deliver. No matter what has happened before the show, mm. um, and so now, now I'm a lot less precious about it. I, I just kind of accept it. I bring, I bring whatever I have to the show. Um, and I do it for this group of people. I, the, well, the last thing I say before I go on, so, so it sounds really <laughs> really silly, but I just stand backstage and okay, I go, okay, do this show for these people. And it's just reminding myself that even if you've had an amazing show, like you saw Saturday Night, which was a full house, yeah. scrolled out big, you know, and then I went again on Sunday at 5 p.m. and it was only sort of, you know, two-thirds, three-quarters, and, and the energy was lower. Yeah. So if I bring the energy that I have from Saturday night... And they go, oh, they're going to love this. And they go out there and go, ah, it's too confronting. They're Mm -hmm. kind of like, oh, who is this? So you've just got to rediscover the relationship with the audience every time. And I love that as well.
0: That's fascinating. Speaking with uh, comedian performer Damien Warren-Smith, all about his show as part of Melbourne Fringe Festival, Gary Starr, Grease Lightning. And, um, I mean, for this show, you've performed it over, like, the past year or so, I think it is as well, so you've performed it a a whole lot of times. Has it sort of changed much at all in terms of the the structure or or the main narrative?
4: I watched a video of the first preview I did at the Butterfly Club back in, like... When was that? Twenty? It must. I think it was the end of twenty twenty-one. Maybe I did a preview and I videoed it and I watched it. And actually, the there's a few of the scenes which have changed the order. There's a couple of new bits in there, but it's not. It hasn't changed a huge amount. So I guess what's happened is that I've tightened it up. I tend to. I'm quite you know strict about the fact that if it's not getting a laugh and it's not moving the show forward, then it goes. Yeah. And so then I'm finding something else to replace it because it's got to either you know something like this if it's not funny why is it there unless it's moving the show forward so it's changed and it's grown um, but then it, it, all those in between you know versions I don't really know like there's some people go oh that wasn't in the last time I saw it I'm like oh really yeah and then night to night like I just threw something in about about Sisyphus the other night yeah. um, and my friend said oh yeah that was my favourite my favorite joke and I was like really that's the first time I've ever done that you know <laughs> I was like oh okay so and yeah, it it does a, change.
0: Yeah, and, and a subtle, well, not even a subtle dig at Queenslanders as well, which I imagine works in some contexts and maybe less so in others. Um, uh, what is it about Greek mythology that lends itself so well to this kind of theatre and, and comedic theatre, I suppose?
4: Uh, Greek mythology is great because it's such a part of our lives that we know, like, and, and we don't even realise how much a part of our lives it is. You know, like I make references to Nike, the goddess of victory, and I make references to to, to to things that people don't, they just didn't realize, like Narcissus. No one realizes that Narcissus was, you know, very few people, do. whether it was part of Greek mythology. And when I say that I'm going to be performing Narcissus, they don't know the story necessarily, but they know, you know, it's likely they know what, you know, what it's going to be about. And so it's really easy to tear down something like that. And it's one of the, you know, it's one of the religions that you can you can mock at the moment yeah. <laughs> <laughs> without being cancelled somehow. Um, but it's also you know it's 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 punching up you know because they're gods you know I, I can I can make fun of something and it's not even really making fun of it in a sense. It's just misunderstanding it with Gary. He just doesn't know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it's so much fun. That narcissist scene, I think, was my favourite one on, on Saturday night. It was hilarious how that all unfolded. Um, Melbourne, of course, has a huge Greek population. And I mean, this is a show that you've performed all over the world. Does that at all kind of play into your approach when performing to, to a Melbourne audience at all? Or do you think about how to change the show depending on sort of who's, who's watching?
4: No, I don't really, to be honest. I mean, there are, like, you know, that joke that I made about the Queenslanders, that's different when I do that abroad, but I don't really change the show much. There's a few little, um, maybe a few little tweaks here and there which might change um, when I do overseas, I've done. I did. I did a few of the other show ghost up and Everything. I did a few performances on cruise ships a while ago, yeah. um, which was really brave of them to book me on a cruise ship because <laughs> I think the demographics are different there. And after the first performance, where it kind of it was one of the most painful experiences, I came off. I thought, what am I going to do? And so I just had to like tweak it I just thought okay so they like the bits but I'm just sort of running around like an idiot but they didn't get the references to Harold Pinter okay how am I going to to tweak the show for tomorrow night
0: (laughs) And you can't escape so, on a free cruise ship either.
4: <laughs> no, and it's not like I was being—I uh, wasn't—I wasn't staying with the entertainment like the, the crew. I was actually in the, um, you know, staying with the guests because a guest entertainer, and uh, so that meant that if people saw the show, then I had to then have breakfast with them in the buffet area or something like that. I <laughs> so it's like, and I've heard some other comedians that have had similar stories with it, like they just bombed on a cruise ship and then had to go and eat, eat, eat dinner with everybody. <laughs> yeah,
0: like, I found yeah. myself not. By choice, on one of those ones, and they are strange, strange places. I've got to say, um, you're very busy as part of Melbourne Fringe Festival with this show, but you're also doing poetry the other night too. So, do you have some other things going on as part of Fringe?
4: Yes, yeah, so I'm doing. what I've just finished. I did three nights of a, a play by a Melbourne playwright called Ben Ellis, and the um, the play was called Poet Number no. Seven, and it was actually I did it. In, I performed it in 2006, but. It was written for four actors, and so I played one of the characters for the the world premiere, which was in in London back in 2006. And um, and then I think I think it did get a, it did get a, a Melbourne run as well. It did play in Victoria, and then it sort of got put to bed. And I was looking for um yeah for a piece of theatre to do because I wanted to delve back into that world a bit more. And so I wrote to Ben and I said, "Has anyone ever done it as a solo where they played all the characters?" And he's like, "No, but knock yourself out." <laughs> <laughs> so I did that the other night and um. Yeah, it went really well, so I'm potentially gonna do a, a run the Adelaide Fringe with it and then maybe even do Edinburgh Fringe with it. But I wanna I really wanna now dip back into the acting world a bit more. I did um, you know, having been a clown now for oh, five, six years really, including the the pandemic in there, um, I'm starting to get that, that itch now to to um to work on some scripts again, some other people's writing and to work with other people too. When you when you're solo for a long time it gets a bit lonely on the road.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I bet. And and what about Gary Starr? I mean, he's taken on some big topics, like Greek mythology. He performs the whole history of, what, theatre, <laughs> different genres of theatre in, in that show. Um, where might he turn his mind next, do you think?
4: Oh, I could I mean, look, the most obvious is the Bible, but it's just like, <laughs> how do you do that and get away with it? Um, I do have another idea of doing all of the Penguin classic novels, which I think could be fun. Wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. To be honest, I don't know. I, I it's. Um, there's a few things in the pipeline. I've got a, um, a family show that I'm working on where I don't get naked. Um, so that's, <laughs> so that, that's in development with um, a director in the UK Who I'd worked with in the past So that's quite exciting But um, yeah, I don't know, to be honest It's sort of a lot of irons in the fire But I don't know what will come to fruition
0: Yeah, I didn't know if you wanted to, to reveal the, the nudity that happens in this show But there you go, that's what you can expect people If you head along and see Gary Stahl, Grease Lightning um, <laughs> It's it's a whole lot of fun And you're playing pretty much every night as part of Fringe Even after Fringe, up to the 20th 9th of October.
4: Yeah, we go. We do an extra week down at the at the Quebec markets at Festival Park. I think a lot of the shows down there do an extra week.
0: Excellent. Well, um, best of luck with it, and have a great fringe. Thank you. Thanks for chatting, Dylan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the Grapevine, a weekly current affairs, issues, and culture program on Triple R. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9 a.m. to midday. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.